0: John Bunyan was an Englishman, and he was a Baptist preacher in the 1600s. In fact, he was born in 1628. He uh, was converted to uh, Christ and to the gospel in his 20s and began preaching. And he was well known for his open-air preaching, which open-air preaching, we kind of have a hint of revival uh, idea with that, but actually, the reason open air preaching in the UK at this time was happening was because they had an established church in the country. And if you preached in a way that defied the established church or at least didn't, uh, you know, kiss its feet, then you were, uh, had, or sorry, you had to preach not in a church building, but out in the open air. So he was an open air preacher. And in 1660, uh, he was arrested for preaching without a license because he didn't have proper permissions from the king. And he spent the next 12 and a half years in prison while he had a wife and four kids at home. So from the age 32 to the age 44, he was in prison. He was briefly then released for a few years before going back to prison, and when she spent another short time. When he was asked once what he would do if he was released from prison, Bunyan said, if I was out of prison today, I would preach the gospel again tomorrow by the help of God. You know, and he had a really productive prison ministry, which it helps uh, when you're wanting to do a prison ministry to actually be in prison. And so he had a very productive prison ministry. He was writing. In fact, in his time in prison, he wrote nearly 60 books. He also was a midnight preacher. And what that means is around in the year 1661 and from 68 to 72, certain jailers actually would help uh, or actually permitted Bunyan to leave and go preach. Uh, They allowed him to do this often enough that uh, one of his biographers noted that it is said that many of the Baptist congregations in Bedfordshire owe their origins to his midnight preaching. I mean, This was a man who not only was in prison for preaching, but continued to preach even though he was in prison. And in his second time in prison, he spent quite a bit of time working on his most famous work, which you probably know. It's one of the most famous works written in the English language, The Pilgrim's Progress. Now, John Bunyan's story reminds us that the threat of persecution and imprisonment are still realities that exist outside the days of the Apostle Paul. It wasn't just the first century in which persecution could take place. It has continued all the way to the 1600s and beyond in places far different than first century Palestine or the Greco-Roman world. Christians, uh, many Christians underwent what Paul went through and many Christians today still do. So what we see in Bunyan's story and we also see in Paul's writing that we're reading today is that persecution, proclamation, and perseverance are all ways that God uses to advance his gospel, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we begin by looking how persecution advances The gospel, if you look in verses 12 through 14, Paul is giving an update on his situation in Rome. The Philippians had just sent him a gift as they had done before, and he was very appreciative of this gift, so it makes sense that from the outset of this letter, he wants to update them on what's going on. But it's for more than just an update that he writes all this. He could have easily, easily had the person who was carrying the letter to the Philippians, update them on what's going on, and I'm sure Epaphroditus did. But, but Paul also puts this here because he wants them to see how he is reacting to his circumstances. Okay, He sees that in Philippi, their situation is becoming very similar to his situation in Rome. He, he would even say that they they needed to look at his example, and as he writes in chapter 4, verse 9, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul is wanting to talk about his circumstances, not just to give an update, but also to give an example, to give them an example that they could follow to give them an example they could emulate, they could imitate. So Paul wants them to see, this is how I'm reacting amidst persecution. This is how I'm reacting amidst imprisonment. Because he seems to think that the challenges the Philippian church is facing and are going to face are very similar to the ones that he is already facing and is uh, going through and continuing to go through. So Paul, like... John Bunyan has a very effective prison ministry. He, he says that the gospel is being advanced. He tells them, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Listen to that. It's not just that Paul's imprisonment and persecution have have been an inhibitor to the gospel advancing, and he's worked his way around it. It's not that the gospel has advanced despite it. He's saying that the gospel advanced because of it. That persecution, his imprisonment, is the very source by which God is advancing the gospel in Rome. And he gives them two examples. One, the first example here is in verse 13, "...so that it has become known." Throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. It has become known to the whole imperial guard, referring to the palace guards. It has become known to them and to all the rest that his imprisonment is for Christ. He's not only in prison for preaching Christ, but he is undergoing the suffering of Christ on behalf of Christ, so that when the prison guard looks at him, they see a man who is in prison, not just because he was difficult, not just because he had done something wrong, but because he had been preaching the gospel and was living for the gospel and was continuing to do so in his chains. And this should not surprise the Philippian church. As we saw in Acts chapter 16, Paul goes to Philippi and ends up in jail there. Apparently, Paul really liked jails. So he ends up in jail in Philippi, and there we see a miracle take place in which the Philippian jailer, the jailer who was overseeing Paul's imprisonment, actually comes to Christ. His household comes to Christ, and they join the church in Philippi. So it shouldn't surprise the Philippian church when Paul says, Good news! I'm in prison in Rome, and I am preaching to the most powerful soldiers that there are, and to all the rest. And this would have been extremely encouraging for Philippi, the Philippian Christians there, because they would see... That although, see, in their colony, they were a Roman colony, and they they were supposed to give lip service to Caesar and called him their Lord, but they would see that Paul, in the highest highs of the Roman government, is still preaching Christ and that he is the only Lord. And not only that, but we see at the end of the letter when he greets the Philippians, he says that all the saints who are with him greet them. He says all the saints, including those in Caesar's household. The Philippians may fear that they are supposed to bow down and worship at Caesar's feet. But Paul is telling them that even in Caesar's own household, there are those who have spurned him as Lord and have submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that Paul's imprisonment, which might look like a bad thing on the, sur- uh, the surface, has actually served as the very way that God is advancing the gospel in Rome but it's not just that. He says that the, the other cause of his being in prison, verse 14, that most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by his imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. They have gone from being fearful people who were afraid of persecution, but then they see Paul in prison and they are encouraged to go and to preach. I think that we uh, need to pause and consider the fact that amid these circumstances we see the church in Rome encouraged, not discouraged, by the persecution of Paul, by his imprisonment there. I think sometimes uh, we have the idea that we should avoid persecution, we should avoid these things because we need to be safe. I've heard it a million times in churches we shouldn't go to that mission trip, it doesn't sound safe. We shouldn't. We, I don't want my kid to go overseas, it doesn't sound safe. I don't want my kid to go to this neighborhood and talk to people because it doesn't sound safe. Well, you know what, guys? The Lord Jesus Christ isn't safe either. He's the king, and he's dangerous, but he's good. It was Tertullian, one of the early church fathers of the second century, who said that the blood of martyrs, is the seed of the church. Tertullian, looking back at the New Testament and shortly thereafter, saw that martyrdom and persecution were one of the things that actually spurred the gospel on. It wasn't something that slowed it down. Every other rebellion that Rome ever faced, they looked at and they said, let's execute the leaders and we'll be done with it. And it worked again and again and again and again, until they faced the Christian church, a people whom even the Romans would say, they lived for a world that is not here. They lived for a world that is beyond. They did not fear death. Just pause to consider that one of the main reasons the gospel spread so quickly and so deeply in the first century was because they were a people who were not afraid of death. And if we pause and think about our own lives... Can we really say the same for ourselves? Now, to be clear, I'm an optimist, if you haven't learned that already. And you might not think that I am, but I certainly am. Even in the worst of circumstances, I tend to be an optimist. And I really try not to be an alarmist or a sensationalist. But the reality is that in at least the Western world, and what I mean by that is Western Europe, the United Kingdom, North America, U.S. and Canada, in the Western world... We are seeing our culture move from a Christendom culture to a post-Christendom culture. And What I mean by Christendom is, you can imagine this, a time when just by virtue of being alive, most people voluntarily went to church. Or like this, if you wanted to go get a loan at a bank, I've heard it, I heard this used to happen, that they might ask you what church you go to, and if you said no church, they'd say, why would I give you a loan? Why would I give a loan to a person who doesn't even go to church? a a Christendom culture where Christendom was assumed. And in a Christendom culture where people are attending church and being a part of it and they're literate in the scriptures, there were a few assumptions they had about life. They assumed that there was a moral law, that there was such a thing as right and wrong. And they actually believed in moral absolutes, that what was good and what was evil applied to everyone. They, They believed that they needed forgiveness. So they had an idea that they were sinners. They believed in a personal God. They weren't denying God's existence or that, or that he cared about the creation. And they just assumed that there was a life after death. So evangelism for some time looked like coming in and connecting the dots of the views people already had. Will you believe in a moral law? Will you know that you can't keep it perfectly, and you, and you know that even if you, by action, do the right things, your heart actually deceives you because you think and you feel the wrong things. Will you believe that there is a moral law that you don't, that you don't live up to? Well, then you need forgiveness, and if you're going to get forgiveness so that you can live in eternity with a personal God who loves you, you need to give your life to Christ. You need to repent and believe. So evangelism in a Christendom world looked like connecting dots that already existed. We are entering into a culture where we cannot take for granted that people attend church. We cannot take for granted even that they believe those dots to begin with. And in a culture where people don't believe those dots, then what do we do? How do we do evangelism? It doesn't look like having a guy coming in and just putting the dots in place for people. You have to convince them that they exist in the first place. We're entering into what is a post Christendom culture, and this can be quite scary for people, especially if you grew up in those years in which evangelism looked like coming in and connecting dots for people. It looked like coming in when someone saw a friend who was not a Christian die and being able to say, don't you want to know that you will be in a good place someday? It can be scary, and societal change and moral change is all a part of that. I told you I'm an optimist. You know what's extremely exciting about living in a post-Christendom culture? Is the culture that we are living in for all of its flaws and all of its failures looks a lot more like the culture of the first century that Paul was preaching in than the one that most of us grew up in. The culture that we are entering has become so secular as to become pagan, and by those means, it is more like the culture of Paul's day when they worshipped any god that was tribal and, and in their area, or they worshipped the government, Caesar himself. We are entering into a culture that looks more like the culture in which Paul preached, and the good news is, in that culture, the gospel spread like wildfire. So the hope that we have today is, it's not that we need to, we, we don't need to, to dwell on the fact that there are no longer dots that we can connect for easy evangelism, but we need to focus on the fact that maybe for the first time in many of our lives, the New Testament is the best resource for evangelism that we've ever had, that we are actually in a culture that looks more like the culture Paul preached in, and in that culture, the gospel spread so that now it is the predominant religion of our world. Our culture may be reaching a point where it is wanting to not only beat down the church, but to try to rid itself of the church altogether. But the good news is our culture is not prepared because it hasn't seen the power. It hasn't seen the power of a persecuted church. Because the persecuted church is the church that will grow the most. I knew a pastor who had gone to a short-term mission trip to support some missionaries in China and he remembers that one of his American uh, team members began to pray in this meeting and in this meeting he prayed, Lord we pray that you would bring freedom to this country like we have in America so they'd be free to and he was interrupted by one of the Chinese pastors there And the Chinese pastor interrupted his prayer and said, do not pray that. He said, we don't want freedom like you have in America because we see what it does to the church. Now, listen to me. I'm not preaching against freedom. What I am saying is that the gospel, the gospel can be advanced, not just despite a culture against it, but it very well might and probably based on everything we know in the scriptures will advance in a gospel that is persecuting it that pastor that chinese pastor said we don't want your watered down christianity we want people whose lives are actually completely lived for christ so don't pray for that it will kill our church and you know what he was right Because what we see the Chinese government doing today is finding ways to lift up Christian churches and give them licensing and proper whatever so that those churches actually can legally run and operate. But the Chinese government knows that once they do that, they're effectively ending the power of the gospel that has been advancing in China for 100 years. So we do not need to fear. God will do what he wants. Not only does persecution advance the gospel, but proclamation advances the gospel. In verses 15 through 18, the very beginning of 18, Paul elaborates on the circumstances in Rome. And he wants to encourage them. But he's also not going to lie to them. So he's going to you know, give them the truth. Because the reality is not all positive. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that In every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul can't hide what's going on in Rome, so he's going to be honest that, you know what, I just told you that the brothers are without fear speaking the word, but I'm also going to be honest with you, some of them are not doing it for the right reasons, some of them are doing it out of goodwill. They, they love me and they know I'm in prison, so they are spreading the gospel in Rome because they know I can't do it. But others are doing it out of envy and rivalry. And the best that we could know about these opponents of Paul is that they were preaching what seems like generally the same gospel. They were still preaching Christ, but they had some differences of opinion with Paul, and they were taking advantage of him being in chains, maybe even pointing to the fact that maybe he's under God's judgment in prison. And so they could go freely and preach Christ. But the difference between them and the other opponents of Paul and his other letters. You know in Galatians, he has some very harsh words for his enemies there. His opponents in the gospel. But there seem to be two big differences. One, the, the people preaching out of envy and rivalry in uh, Rome at this time were likely not preaching a completely false gospel. They may have been preaching some things that weren't true or weren't what Paul would have agreed with, but they were still preaching Christ. The other part that's significant is their demeanor was very different. Whereas in Galatia, Paul had established that church and taught them what was right, and then other people from outside who were false teachers came in, basically being what today we might call sheep stealers, trying to take his members of this church and convert them, not really to Christianity, but to another form of Judaism. Take these Gentile Christians and convert them. It's different here in Rome because they're not going into Paul's churches that he established and trying to convert them to a new form of religion. They are going to Gentile Roman people and proclaiming Christ to them. The difference is they're not stealing other church members, they're actually doing evangelism and they're not preaching a false gospel. They're just preaching some different things. So, Paul, in response to that, says that he's going to rejoice because Christ is proclaimed. Whatever the motives are. Uh, Cody and I were talking about this passage this week, and he pointed out, you know, there are, some, there are some groups, and there are some moments in which Christ is preached that we may not agree with how it was done. So we talked about how, you know, when you're watching the Super Bowl, there was a few ads you may have noticed from the He Gets Us campaign, in which they were, the, the, the content of the actual commercials were very minimal, right? But they were spending millions and millions of dollars to give a simple ad trying to push the message of Jesus and get people to go to their website, right? And you know what? I don't know all the details of that campaign or the group that did it. But even when I was sitting there, and Cody said this as well, even when I was sitting there, I thought, Jesus in a Super Bowl ad? That's pretty good. And they're not saying something bad about him or making fun of him. That's pretty good. It's a start. And in that, I rejoice. So we may have people who are preaching Christ, maybe for the wrong reasons, and I don't know if that ad campaign was for the wrong reasons, but the fact that they preach Christ, Paul says he can rejoice because the gospel is being proclaimed and people are being brought to salvation. Paul himself, before he ends up in Rome, writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 10 this, verses 14 and 17, the the reason proclamation advances the gospel the reason preaching advances the gospel is because god has decided that preaching would advance the gospel he decided that the word preached would be his way of or, uh, his way for the church to advance the gospel and tell people about christ and 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 gospel preaching isn't just what i'm doing right now To be clear, I think it is what I'm doing right now. Taking a text of scripture, explaining it, pointing where the gospel is in it, applying it to our lives as Christians. I believe that that is 100% a very extremely valid way of preaching and I wouldn't want to do it really any other way. But it's not the only form of preaching. There's also just what Paul says in verse 14 with boldness, speaking the word without fear. Preaching isn't just a big event that a bunch of people show up for on Sunday. Preaching is what every Christian ought to be doing with every day of our lives. Preaching to ourselves the gospel, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and thank you, Lord, that you saved us. Preaching to our family, preaching to our friends and our neighbors, and everyone we come across the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not again, saying that you need to go crazy and and feel like every moment you have to get into a gospel conversation with everybody. You're going to find a lot of failure that way. But I am saying just even learning how to view the world through the lens of the gospel and spending time with the Lord such that you naturally, naturally preach the gospel to yourself and to your friends and to your neighbors. So that someone can point out how lovely the weather is, and you say, Isn't it great how good God is and how He created this day for us? And maybe if you're lucky, you get to move on and talk about how we screwed it up and how He fixed it again. But even just that small moment. The reality is, the gospel is the heart of Christianity, and where there is no gospel, there is no Christianity. It's kind of like having a Chick fil A without the chicken. Or a soccer match without the ball. You can't get really far with Christianity without the gospel. It's the whole thing. It is the message of Jesus. So the effectiveness of preaching for gospel advancement is dependent on the proclamation. So for the average person, how do we we become a preacher? Now I'm not saying, again, someone who's specially called to get up in front of people and preach how do we become a preacher in our daily lives i think it is that actually spending time with the lord reading his word maybe even memorizing his word i know crazy spending time praying through his word and making that a part of the very language of our hearts and the very language we naturally speak it means spending time with people who are not christians Yeah, we can preach the gospel to our Christian friends, but if we're actually going to advance the gospel in a way that brings more people into being disciples of Christ, we actually have to be talking to and around people who are not Christian. I know one uh, person who was the head of a Christian organization, and he said, I realized that every day of my life I was spending all my time with Christians. I'd wake up in the morning, I was at home, and there were a bunch of Christians there. I'd go to work. I was at a Christian uh, organization, nonprofit, There were Christians there. I'd go home. Go to a Bible study at church. There were Christians there, but there were no lost people. So you know what he did? Because his schedule allowed it, he said, I'm going to work in a coffee shop one day a week on all the work I can do from my computer so that I can be around non-Christians. And he actually had some great stories of the people he got to talk to. Because once we are people who are saturated with the gospel and saturated with the love for God and we're around people who do not know him, I think we will naturally begin to connect the dots for them. And maybe even convince them of the dots themselves. The last thing for us this morning is that perseverance advances the gospel. In verses 18 through 26, Paul is is working through an issue he has. Because Paul is awaiting a trial. And he knows that at that trial, one of two things is going to happen. He's either going to be found not guilty and get to move on. Or he's going to be found guilty and be executed. He doesn't actually have a say on whether he lives or whether he dies. But he is having an internal struggle about what he wants. Does he want to live or to die? Crazy enough, Paul says that uh, in, in verse, starting in verse 22, he says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. I don't know about you. Some of you may find yourselves in a time in life. Maybe you're already there. I've known some older saints who, before they passed, would say out loud, you know, I'm just ready to go on and be with the Lord. But for the majority of our lives, I don't know that we can consistently say that like Paul can. I don't know that we love and live for Christ so much that we see death as a gain and being in the presence of Christ. Look at verse 21. This is the famous uh, verse in this passage. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I mean, literally, Paul, in, in the language, there's no is. It's just to live Christ, to die gain. Now how do we reconcile that? Okay, to live is Christ. That's good. Okay, I get that. I get we're in Christ. We're living for Christ. To live, Christ. Got it. To die, gain. We just said we had Christ over here. Why is it a gain to die? But Paul knows that he is in Christ in life, and he will be in Christ in death, and he has the faith to actually believe not just that there is an afterlife, but in that afterlife he will be with Christ. He will be freed from some of the difficulties of this life, and he will be fully with Christ. He's not saying that his life has less value than his death. He's just simply saying that he lives for Christ, and so he knows that his death will be gained. And let me be very clear, only those who can say in earnest, to live Christ, can also say to die gain. Only those who are in Christ can have hope for the life after death. Only those who are repentant and believe in Christ and Jesus, those are the only ones who can say the life to come is gain. All others cannot say that. So we can't just sit around and hope for death. We have to be the kind of people who live for Christ if we are to be the people who can hope in death. He is longing for eternity, longing for eternity with Christ. But in the here and now, he is going to live in light of that eternity. He is going to persevere. He's going to endure these trials and this imprisonment and his suffering and this life because it will help the Philippians. He says, if I live, it will be fruitful labor for me. He said, to remain in the flesh, verse 24, is more necessary on your account. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul sees life in a very single-minded way. He sees I mean, when we hear Paul say the words, to live Christ, we're not really surprised if we've read anything else about Paul. If we've heard anything else about Paul, we say, yeah, that makes sense. Because you are a single-minded person, almost obsessively concerned with living the whole of your life all for Christ. But we're really not called to any lower standard. The difficulty is, even if we say, yes, we live for Christ, in our world, in our culture, don't we also live for other things? We live for Christ plus something else. We live for Christ plus work. We live for Christ plus accumulating wealth. We live for Christ plus leisure and fun. We live for Christ plus safety and comfort we live for christ plus fill in the blank we do not live single-mindedly for christ and many times even if we are the best of people with the best of intentions we find ourselves in places where we are choosing to live for some things over and against living for christ i've said it before and i'll say it again we have an eternity to go around and have fun if we are Christians, we believe Christ will come again, resurrect us, redeem our world, and we will live. We can go to any place and visit it. We can go to anyone and talk to them. I don't know that we will want to. We may be too enamored with worshiping Christ. But we have eternity to have fun. We have eternity to be saved and to feel comfortable. We have eternity to work unto the Lord. We do not have an eternity to. To tell our neighbors and our friends about the gospel. We do not have an eternity to sit on our hands and hope they figure it out.